0: Hello and welcome to the Highland Bridge Builders Podcast. My name is David Flatt. I'll be hosting today's podcast as well as teaching the class. We've been gone for several weeks and we do apologize for that. We had a series on marriage which we thought was best to do off the podcast, but for the next six weeks we'll be back on teaching through the book of Ephesians. This is an incredible book about how Christ reconciles both the believing Christian and the world to himself through the power of his resurrection. I hope that you'll be encouraged and challenged by this text over the next six weeks. And I hope that if you ever have the opportunity, you'll join us in class at 10 a.m. at Highland Church of Christ, uh, where we meet each and every Sunday. Thank you, and I hope that you enjoy this lesson. Good morning, everybody. I hope you had a good Memorial Day weekend. Um, I guess for most of us, probably a short work week. So several people have told me that they had a... uh, a short work week uh, this week, and I hope hope that was the case for you. Maybe the week seemed like it went a little faster. But that week's over, so now we got a a full work week ahead of us. I hope that uh, things are going well for you. We have just finished up a four-week series on marriage and uh, intimacy and relationships and all that that uh, Bill Ivey and the Highland marriage team led for us in class. And so we didn't podcast those lessons so we could kind of be more open and and talk in kind of a more, I don't know. Open way without being recorded, but uh, we're going to start back. Kind of really, what I think this class is about for the next six weeks, which is is relying on the word and letting the Word teach us uh, what what God has revealed. So we're going to be in the book of Ephesians, and we're going to go verse by verse. We'll start in Ephesians 1 today. Ephesians has six chapters, so for the next six weeks we'll be in the book of Ephesians, which is really an incredible book. I'll do a short introduction this morning, and um, then then we'll actually talk about the text in Ephesians 1, which is a little bit shorter than the other chapters. Interestingly, Ephesians 1 has 23 verses, so you think, well, that's, you know... a reasonably length uh, chapter probably has 23 verses probably has 20 or so sentences in it right well in the original greek it's actually three sentences so paul is famous for these like run-on sentences um have like really technical and complicated grammar, and so the, the, the ideas are really complex, and so it's going to be hard to kind of break it out. Do our, we'll do our best, but you can imagine writing 23 verses, it's three sentences. So Paul, like any good theologian, writes these unnecessarily complicated, long sentences and communicates ideas in, in really uh, long-winded fashion. So we're going to try to get through it. Um, it's really beautiful though and i think the ideas are 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 powerful so we'll do that this week the next week clint's going to pick up with ephesians chapter 2 so nothing too um not like a real complex or or uh, abstract strategy we're just going to go chapter by chapter through the book of ephesians which really i've kind of revealed this in here before that's that's really my my biases that's what we ought to do um if you got up this morning to come here what you know david's tips for life i think you you wasted your time who cares what i think about anything um so what i'm interested in is what does god say um not what does david think so it, it follow along with me in ephesians 1 this morning and if, if i'm deviating from the text then uh, don't don't pay any attention to what i'm saying i, I only want to teach uh what what god's revealed through through his spirit and through the uh the writing pen of paul so we'll be in ephesians 1 i'm gonna start us off with a prayer and then we'll do a short introduction and then uh jump into the text Dear Father, you are so good and your truth is so rich. And we thank you for the power and unity and authority that you've claimed for yourself and demonstrated through your power in raising Jesus from the dead. We thank you uh, that you've given that same power and authority to your church and have elected us to be a part of that family. God, thank you so much for all you've given us. And thank you so much for the people in this room who um, whose lives are marked by... Um, just a, a salt and quiet decency that, that honors you and wants to live uh, a life uh, that brings glory to your name. God, I pray that you would empower us to uh, claim your power uh, to do that for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. Alright, well, so like I said, we're going to be in Ephesians 1. Let's do a quick kind of introduction to Ephesians, and then um, we'll talk about the text. So we're going to do three things in class this morning. The first thing we're going to do is we're just going to intro Ephesians. So We're going to spend six weeks on it. This is the first week, so we'll just kind of talk about who wrote Ephesians, who is it written to, what's the point of the book. So we'll do that for a few minutes this morning. Then we'll jump through the text, and we're going to do Ephesians 1, uh, 1 through 23, and then we'll we'll wrap up with talking about gospel truths in Ephesians. What is kind of the main point in the first uh, chapter of Ephesians? So uh, let's just start with kind of introduction, basic introductory questions. The first thing is who wrote Ephesians? Who wrote Ephesians? The early church and the modern church throughout Christian history has been universal in ascribing uh, that Paul wrote the book of Ephesians. And that's not really been a point of church controversy. The reasons, um, I guess there's really two reasons. The one, and I think most important reason, is that this letter claims that Paul wrote it. So Paul says, I'm writing this letter both in verse 1-1 and in verse 3-1. So if you're going to say Paul didn't write it, then you've got to say the text is wrong. So I think we're kind of bound as Bible-believing Christians to believe that Paul wrote Ephesians. The second reason is that Ephesians demonstrates close similarity to Paul's style and thought. So they run these like, you know, I guess biblical scholars have done like computer simulations comparing the different um, books that Paul's written and the vocabulary and the the structure of thought is similar in Ephesians to other books. Uh, Notably it's not as similar to, to maybe like Romans and Galatians some books that, that even critical scholars would say undoubtedly Paul wrote. But Ephesians is definitely demonstrates Pauline characteristics. It was probably a letter written to F, the church at Ephesus but also may have been circulated to other churches around the region. So maybe if you wrote wanted to write a church a letter to the churches in Memphis you might write to the church at Highland on one letter and then have a very similar if not identical letter say to the church at Bellevue, to the church at White Station to the church at Sycamore View and to see how um, the ideas in this letter probably were not intended only for the local church at Ephesus, but also for the churches across Asia Minor. The date is interesting. Um, so Paul repeatedly mentions in this letter that he's in prison. He talks about how he's in chains, he's in prison for the gospel. So he talks about that in 3.1, 4.1, and 6.20. So this really helps us date um, the book. It's probably written in 62 A.D. when Paul was in prison. Um, you know, he went to Rome, was in prison. So If you guys remember, when we went through Acts, we talked about like the timeline of Paul's life. So um, Jesus is resurrected, but probably in 33 A.D. Paul's converted about a year later. Then Paul does visits Jerusalem. This is the Jerusalem council where they argue about circumcision. This is in 36 AD. Then Paul goes on these missionary journeys. So um, he goes on the first missionary journey in 46 and the Third, he visits Jerusalem again in the second missionary journey in 48. then the third missionary journey, he goes to Ephesus and he spends three years in Ephesus. So in Acts 19, there's like this really emotional speech where Paul's leaving Ephesus. He says something like real dramatic, like we wept because we would never see each other again, You know just like this really uh, dramatic moment. He's up in the upper room with the elders saying bye to them for the final time. So this is a letter written to people that Paul knew and he, he loved these people and he wept when he left them. He spent three years at this church. So after on the third missionary journey, remember he gets in trouble um, in Jerusalem, and so then he he um, keeps getting uh, he keeps going on trial and appealing his case up and up and up, and eventually he ends up in Rome. Remember, and really. Um, they don't know what to do with him because they can't really like, execute him or put him in jail because he hasn't done anything wrong. He's preaching a gospel that tells people to obey the laws of Rome and to live quiet lives of, of gratitude and, and service. And so they can't really put him in jail or they can't really execute him, but they can't really let him free either because he's causing unrest. And so they end up putting him in prison, right? And so we've talked about how this was, this was kind of a moment where we think, Man, Satan's won this, right? We got this great church planner in the early church. It's going across um, Western Asia planning churches uh, f- for the sake of the gospel, and the bad guys get them and they put them in jail. So it's like, it's kind of game over. Well, actually, what, what, what um, maybe the forces of evil intended for evil, God used for good. Because if Paul's stuck in jail, so what's he do? He starts writing these letters. Right? So if Paul never ends up in jail, we may not be sitting here this morning, right? Uh, but luckily God's sovereign plan was a lot greater than, than what Paul or the early church would have come up with. If we were sitting in a room thinking about how can we start a worldwide Christian movement that honors the resurrected Christ, our first plan wouldn't be let's have our greatest missionary and church planner be arrested and stuck in house arrest. That's not the strategy we would have come up with. But it is the strategy in God's sovereignty that he came up with. Paul ends up in house arrest, he starts writing all these letters. So one of the letters he would naturally write is back to the church in Ephesus where he spent three years. And so that's what we're looking at in the book of Ephesians. Okay, so then the themes of Ephesians is really twofold. We'll talk about some of these this morning. Really later in the book, we kind of get into these more explicitly. But the first idea is that Christ is reconciling all creation to himself. So this kind of a... um, this idea we've talked about like the uh maybe that like the cultural view of like um Your best friend Jesus, like he's just like a a pal or a buddy uh, that's kind of hanging out with you and helping you get through day to day. That's not the view, that's not a biblical view of Jesus. It's certainly not um, a a Pauline view of Jesus in the book of Ephesus. He sees Jesus as the co creator of the universe, a big, powerful Jesus who has all power and authority, claiming it to himself, demonstrating that power through the resurrection. And so part of what uh, Jesus is doing through his Holy Spirit in the church is reconciling not just. The Jewish people not just all people but all of creation to himself so Jesus is claiming authority over the whole world and so that's one of the central themes in Ephesians the other is that Christ is uniting all people to himself through the church so this is a really powerful New Testament theme that I think you know I I love the church and I love church history I think this is a theme that especially in the Western church we have not emphasized as appropriately as scripture does so we have a tendency to think that Christianity that the church is for people like us whoever we would be. So in the, in the history of western Christianity it was uh, the church was very europeanized and an idea was let's make the church look like the rest of us. The biblical view of the church, though, is, is just the opposite. The biblical view of the church is Christ is now expanding his people beyond just the nation of Israel to the whole world. So regardless of your color, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your nation of origin, regardless of your socioeconomic status, Christ is, is uniting all of these different people who would have no reason to be in the same room, who would have no reason to have a relationship with each other. He's uniting all those people to himself through the church. And I think if you look at the world, you kind of see that. Nations, there's not a lot of of ethnic and socioeconomic and uh, political diversity in unity, unity within diversity. But in the church, not always, but if you look around the world, there is. Christianity is the most ethnically, socioeconomically, and racially diverse religious movement in the history of the world. Think of all the other great religions on the planet. They're all geographically based, racially based, ethnically based. Christianity's not. There's large Christian movements on every continent, speaking every language and every color all across the world. And it was designed that way from the beginning, right? This isn't like an accident of history. This is God's sovereign grace from the beginning plan was to bless all people Really from Abraham, right? So remember like Genesis 12, that's the beginning of the story. God promises this pagan guy Abraham wandering along in the desert, promises him three things. One of those things is that all nations of the world are going to be blessed through your seed. So through the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ comes and the whole world is blessed uh, through that. So that's really um, the two main themes in Ephesians. So let's look now kind of specifically at the text. We're going to start in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 1 and we'll go through the end. I just want to say again, I'm going to do my best. I really kind of struggle with this text. It's it's um, intellectually challenging because Paul is a, a lot smarter guy than me. And so his, his grammar is complicated. Like I said, in the original Greek, this is three sentences. So these are like these huge compound sentences that only like English teachers can write because they've got like, you know, these parenthetical phrases and I don't even know what all these things are called but it is super long sentences in your English translation there's probably multiple sentences just because it's you can't translate it that way but the ideas are really complex so I was up late trying to understand it so kind of bear with me if I I stutter a little bit but basically uh, Ephesians 1 is divided up into three sections the first is a greeting okay we'll talk about that briefly then there's a poem in uh, chapter 1 verses 3 through 14 and then there's a prayer this is, chapters 15, this is verses 15 through 23. So we'll go through each of those. Let's first talk, if you've got, uh, got your Bibles out, if you want to turn to Ephesians 1, verses 1 and 2, and I'll just read it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So again here, just like we said, Paul identifies himself as the author. So I think we're committed to Pauline authorship Um, and this is also true the same phrase do I have actually a text here I don't have the first two so just look at look along with me in, in your Bibles I guess but this phrase Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus Paul uses that same language in Romans and all of the pastoral epistles so this is a typical opening how Paul would open his letters then he says of Christ Jesus Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus so Paul is an apostle who belongs to Jesus Christ right so I think you can look around. Sometimes we've got Bible teachers, preachers, people who call themselves apostles preaching a different gospel, right? Maybe a kind of a health and wealth. Here's how to live your best life now. Here's five tips for a, a good day. Uh, but Paul's not interested in that. He's not interested in being a preacher of some other doctrine. He's a preacher of Christ Jesus. He's a, he's a true apostle. And then he also claims here his apostleship is by the will of God. So he's expressing the means by which he was chosen as an apostle. This isn't an accident. I didn't even choose this. God chose me. Paul does this regularly because within the early church there's a little bit of dissension. Some people don't like Paul's kind of really gospel-centered preaching kind of question. Were you really with Jesus? We see this in like Galatians. So Paul regularly is kind of defending himself. I am an apostle chosen by God. On the road to Damascus, Jesus appeared to me, asked me to go around the world preaching this gospel. And so Paul's doing the same thing here at the beginning of Ephesians. Then Paul's standard greeting, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's verse 2 grace and peace. So this this particular greeting is famous for Paul. It's his favorite greeting. He uses this exact same verbiage in seven other letters. So grace to you and peace from God. That's in Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Philemon, 2 Thessalonians, um, and Philippians. Paul uses the same phrase. So why does he use this? Well, he's combining two worlds. So this is kind of fits in with Pauline theology. He's trying to combine the different worlds that he exists in underneath the branch of Christianity. So this idea of grace, very Greek thought, to give to people what they don't deserve. And then this idea of peace is a very Jewish thought. You think about like the shalom idea in the Old Testament we've talked about. So the, the, the Old Testament patriarchs, they sought the shalom of God, the peace of God. So Paul is saying the shalom of God and the grace of pagan culture to all of you underneath the name of Christ Jesus. And so Paul loved this greeting so much because it so encapsulates Christian theology. He just He's like, that's a good way to say it. So he just did it every time. He just, over and over, he would open his letters the same way. Grace and peace to you. So Paul's greeting is distinctively Christian and it, it um, combines both these elements. Also, interestingly, Ephesians is a lot about grace and peace. So maybe even among all the letters, this is the perfect way to start Ephesians. Alright, so now let's jump into the text. Could somebody read? uh, We'll kind of go through it piece by piece, but maybe we'll read the whole thing and then go through piece by piece. So anybody that wants to, could you read chapter 1, verses 3 through 14? This is... Yeah, good.
1: Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world... might be to the praise of his glory in him you also when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory
0: yeah that's easy stuff right makes sense just first time through so that's one sentence that's that's one sentence yeah like, can we put a period in there Paul? <laughs> So um, let's, let's go through it. So let's start. I think the only way that I can understand this last night is I just got to break it down, right? So maybe there's like, the you know, maybe if a professional theologian, a real smart guy, can just kind of suck it all up in one, one bunch. I got to break things down. So let's start by just kind of a generalized outline of what's going on here. So in this poem, Paul talks about uh, praising God for the blessings that are in Christ. And he lists four specific blessings, okay? The first blessing is this idea that God chose us. The second one is this idea that God redeemed us. God gives us an inheritance and then he seals us with his spirit. And so let's talk about each of those in turn and we'll just kind of walk through the text. Okay, so um, I'll tell you what, why don't we go to the text. That may be the easiest way to break it down. So the first blessing we have in Christ is that God chose us. So in Christ, God chooses a people for himself. Okay, in Christ, God chooses a people for himself. This is the doctrine of election. So there are corporate and individual aspects to election. So um, I don't know. I guess maybe, maybe it's half and half. I don't know. But if you went to a Christian college, a typical thing to do is like late at night, if you want to have like a biblical argument, is to argue about the idea of elections. You stay up late at night, talk about what does predestination mean, what does election mean, how does this all fit together. And so we don't have time to go through it all right now even though it would be a really cool thing to do, right? That's That uh, shows like uh, our parties were different at Harding than uh, <laughs> maybe at some other schools. So. Um but in the fall you know we're we're going through the series on uh biblical theology, systematic theology and uh we're doing it kind of in bite-sized chunks. In the fall we'll have a whole class on election. So we'll break it down. We can't, I can't you can't uh I can't solve 2000 years of church controversy in the 5 minutes here that we're going to talk about election. But a general idea, you kind of have two concepts about election. So you can't be a Bible-believing Christian and say there's nothing to this idea of God choosing His people. It's all over the Bible. It's in the, it's in the Old Testament, especially in Genesis and in Deuteronomy. And it's in the New Testament. It's in Romans. It's in uh, Ephesians right here especially. It's also in, in Galatians and Philippians some too. So there is some idea of election. So for Bible-believing, you know, always in an argument, some guy's going to play this card, well, you know, maybe we, maybe we don't believe the Bible. Okay, well, if you don't want to believe the Bible and you want to make up your own, doc, your own Christian doctrine that's not what the Bible says, that's a different argument. That's not an argument I'm really interested in, in having. It, that's irrelevant to me, what you think would be a good doctrine. But what does the Bible teach? So if, you, if we want to believe that, I think we have two options. One would be that election is individual. And so this is really the doctrine that's encompassed by the branch of Christian Protestantism called calvinism so this is the idea that god chooses individual people from the history of the world to be a part of his family okay and there you know if if you were just going to um kind of proof text through the bible there are scriptures that would support that kind of view okay then the the second idea is that election is corporate and this is the idea that's aren't in arminianism which is another protestant doctrine there's lot of arguing about this in kind of the uh, the renaissance late middle ages era Uh, but the idea of corporate election is that that God elects his church God elects a group of people and we as individuals choose whether or not we're a part of that body right so but this idea before the foundations of the earth God elected that he would choose his church and an individual creations of God, we choose whether or not we're a part of that body. Okay, So that would be Arminianism. There's another um, another idea, if you're just interested in, in thinking about this or Googling it over the week, there's another idea called Molinism, which is kind of a hybrid of these these two ideas, and we'll talk about that in the fall. Uh, but Molinism kind of is is seeking to preserve God's sovereignty, God's power and individual sovereignty in choosing who um, what happens in the history of the world but also preserving human freedom. And so this idea of kind of hybridizing the two. The point here is that this is a, a topic that, that, that is easy for debate. In fact, we have whole Christian denominations have split and resplit and recombined and double split over ideas like this. And I think if Paul looked at kind of the history of Christian thought on this idea of election, course i can't know this for sure but i think he'd be really disappointed right so our human nature loves to debate ideas like this i would suggest if you look at the text let me just let me just read here where how he talks about what happens in an election god blessed us in christ that's in verse three spiritual blessing he chose us in him he predestined us for adoption he blessed us in the beloved in him we have redemption through the blood forgiveness of our trespasses he lavished upon us all wisdom and to us the mystery of his will. So I'll just make two points. One, all those pronouns are plural, right? It's not he blessed you. He blessed you. It's he blessed us. So maybe I'm kind of tipping my hand a little bit, but I, I don't think that individual election is true. I think, I think election is primarily corporate. So God has elected his church. But the other point I want to make is these, these, these kind of blessings are immense. We're talking about He chose us, He predestined us, He blessed us in the Beloved. He's given us richness of grace, and He's revealed to us the mystery of His will. So I would encourage us not to debate the doctrine of election, but to delight in it. We are a part of the church that before the foundations of the world, God said, I want those people in my family forever. Forever. And so we don't need to have a bunch of church splits about the details of what, you know, how exactly this works out in the mind of God throughout the history of the ages because this is a beautiful truth. God wants you in his family. That's what the Doctrine of Election is about. God wants you in his family. How that plays out, of course, there's a little mystery here, but the truth is so much more important than the mystery. God wants you in his family. So that's the first blessing, is this blessing of God chose us The second blessing is that God redeems us. God redeems us. So let's look at verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the ful- fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. You can kind of hear this last phrase, kind of hear one of the themes of Ephesians. Christ is about uniting all of creation back to himself. That's, that's part of the work of Christ, this last phrase. To unite all things to him and things in heaven and things on earth. Over the next six weeks, we'll pick up on that theme over and over again. But I want to talk about this idea of redemption. If you look in verse 7 with me. Look in verse... Um, I'm sorry. Verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. So this idea of redemption is to be freed from bondage. So we're freed from bondage in Him. So in Christ, the, the church at Ephesus, and by extension us, we're freed from bondage. Well, what does that mean? Well, the first thing it means is we're freed from bondage through His blood. right? So if you're talking about freedom, Christian freedom, and you're talking about some... Uh, political ideas, our new social structures, our new um, yeah, immigration plan, our new way to to save money and be healthy and be wealthy uh, that, that's not the gospel that Paul's talking about here, right? Paul's talking about that this freedom doesn't come from techniques that we do; it comes from the blood that Christ gave, right? So that's that's the gospel message. And then, what does this blood do? What is the what is the Christian blessing of freedom? What is it that makes us free? It is the forgiveness of our trespasses. Trespasses is a $3 word for things that we did wrong, right? There's things that we did wrong that violates the holy nature of God, right? So God is perfectly holy, can't be in the presence of sin. We violated that. So by extension, we are separated morally and spiritually from God. And so how are we forgiven of our trespasses? Through the blood of Christ, which gives us redemption. Okay, and then the final idea uh, that I want to get he- get to here is that it's given as a gift for us. So you talk about what's the difference in grace and mercy? So mercy is not getting what you do deserve, right? So somebody um, somebody's about to be executed or whatever, they may ask for mercy from the king. I-, I did this wrong thing, but please don't give me what I deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. So the blessing, this forgiveness, this redemption, this freedom from bondage is not something that we deserve, but was given to us according to the riches of His grace. So the graciousness of God that overflows from His nature, that wants to give you what you don't deserve. You deserve separation from God forever. I deserve separation from God forever. But from the overflow of His gracious nature, He is providing redemption for us. All right, so that's the idea that the second blessing that, that um, we're given is that He has redeemed us. His blood frees us from the bondage of sin. All right, the third thing that we get here is this idea of an inheritance. Look at me at verse 11. So, again, we're talking about four gifts that God has given us in Christ. The first is that He chose us, the second is that He redeemed us, the third one is that He gives us an inheritance. Verse 11. In Him we have an, obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. So in Him we are given a spiritual inheritance. So this idea of not having anything, and because you're bound to a new person, to God Himself, now you're given everything. right? So God owns all of creation, You own nothing, right? By being bound to Him, God is including you in this rich spiritual inheritance. We'll talk about inheritance a little bit more in in the next section, but, but let's just briefly point out the purpose of our inheritance is to glorify God. Look at verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Right? So why do you receive this inheritance? Why do you receive this rich thing that you don't deserve, that I don't deserve? Why, what is the purpose of giving you all these good things? Is, is it so that we can sit back and be comfortable and coast out uh, our American capitalist, suburban, comfortable lifestyles, retire early one day and move to the beach? No. The purpose of these rich spiritual blessings, not material blessings, these rich spiritual blessings is for the purpose of glorifying God. So what do you do with the grace, peace, love, the community that we all share? What's the purpose of all that? Is it so we can look good to the rest of the world and let's we'll say, oh man, look at those good people. No, it's so that people will look at us and glorify God, right? The purpose of the spiritual blessings in your life, the fruits of the Spirit that hopefully the people you live next to and work around, that that they see overflowing from your character, the purpose of those is not to glorify you. Oh, what a great person Peter is, right? That's not the idea. Oh, Peter's a pretty good guy. But the purpose is they see the life of Peter when he's at work and they praise God. Say, man, that God that Peter serves must be awesome because I see it in Peter. That's the idea here in Ephesians. Okay, and let's talk about the fourth blessing that we're given. And that's this idea of He seals us with the Spirit. This is going to um, starting in verse 13. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory." Again, this idea of receiving the Holy Spirit, this blessing of the Holy Spirit, the purpose of it is to praise and glorify God. Uh, We don't have too much time for a a side tangent here, but but we should understand that God is deeply interested in glorifying himself. In fact, that's almost one of the themes of Scripture. We've done this before, but walk through Scripture and talk about All the times God says, I did this for my glory, all the way back when he delivers his people from bondage and slavery in Egypt, all the way up until demonstrating his power in the resurrection of Christ, God repeatedly says, I'm doing this great work for my glory. You say, that sounds kind of presumptuous of God, right? Like if, if Dudley walked around and was like, I'm doing this for my glory. That's why, that's why I'm getting things done. So you guys will look at me and say, I'm awesome. But then, then I think we're stuck with the question, well, who would you have him glorify, right? God is the greatest possible being. And so the greatest good would be to glorify that which is the greatest possible being. If God would point to someone else and say, glorify him, then that being would be God. So the greatest possible being would demand his own glory. In fact, we're designed to, to meet our greatest purpose and have our greatest fulfillment in glorifying that he who is the greatest being, the, the picture of perfection that we were created in the image of. And so the greatest joy you can find is in glorifying your creator. And that's why over and over again throughout scripture, this idea, I did this for my glory. You extend my grace for my glory. Central biblical theme. Another theme here, which I hope is a part of a lot of the teaching that we do in class here, is the idea of the gospel. This idea of the gospel. So look at verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. So there's kind of some confusing ideas in the culture about what is the gospel. And I I, I think some Christians who have... um, some different desires for what they want in the world, what they want out of culture, what they want politically, uh, know that the word gospel is, is popular among Christians, so want to tie this idea of the gospel to a certain political movement that they want to accompany or a certain uh, lifestyle that they feel comfortable with or um, even to a cultural change that they want. So you hear ideas like uh, the social gospel or the health and wealth gospel or even like the political gospel, almost like a nationalistic movement. And so you tie this idea of gospel to all these other kind of political, and cultural changes and I just want to say on the front end that is um, well I was going to say, I say this in the nicest way possible there's not a nice way to say it that's heresy that's is, that is false teaching that's wolves in sheep's clothing trying to lead the church in ways that are not biblical so let's look at here when Paul defines the gospel what, what happens when the gospel is preached you heard the word of truth. So this gospel, the gospel is not some political reality of um, equality or nationalistic reality of exclusion. The gospel is something that has heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, for those who believe in him. So if, if no one's talking about believing in Jesus, it's not the gospel. It's a political idea. It's a wolf in sheep's clothing. It's not biblical. And that gospel, the biblical gospel, is sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Sometimes you'll hear someone say something like, the gospel is um, what happens here and now, and Christians are too concerned about what happens in the future. Well, maybe Christians are concerned about, about what happens in the future, but you know what else, who else is concerned about what happens in the future? The Holy Spirit that inspired the writing of the Bible. Right? The Bible is concerned about what happens in the future, so the Christian mind should be too. Look, look at verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? So sure, the gospel changes us now, and that's a big part of the Christian life, living holy, redeemed lives for the sake of others. That's part of the gospel. But the gospel is also what's coming. Right? So Jesus came weak and in mercy as an example for us to how to live as humans, but also conquering the great defeaters of humanity, sin and death. So when he comes back, he's not coming back weak and meek. Right? He's come back literally on a white horse. Like, I'm talking about like, this is a lot cooler than John Wayne riding in on a white horse. Right? This is like the king of the universe riding in on a white horse, conquering all of sin and death in finality. So part of the gospel is preaching that, that it's not over. in, in the, the the good guys win behind King Jesus. And so that's a, a central idea um, that Paul's getting here in Ephesians 1, that God chose us, he redeemed us, he's given us inheritance, and He sealed us with his spirit. Okay, so let's move on um, to the, the second half of Ephesians 1. I think we can roll a little bit quicker through this, not because it's, it's any less important, but some of these ideas are repeated. So Paul first gives uh, this poem, right? So we talked about our, our outline here is that the first Uh, first part of Ephesians 1 up to verse 14 is a poem talking about the blessings that we have in Christ. The second part of Ephesians 1 is a prayer. So Paul now, after he's given this poem with the blessing that the Christian has in Christ, then he delivers a prayer praying for his uh, brothers and sisters who he spent three years with in Ephesus that they would achieve lives and accept and embrace the truth that they have these gifts. So Paul prays that God will give the Ephesians the spirit of wisdom and revelation and that they will know God's great grace. Okay, so let's look at... um, verses 15 through 23. Somebody want to read that for me? I know, like, no one likes being read to, right? It's like, no one likes that unless you're like seven years old, right? No one likes being read to. But I want to encourage us. This. this is the Word of God, right? And so let's try to overcome kind of the, the visual culture that we're so ingrained in and, and receive this when it's read to us as the powerful truth that it is. So, so that being said, somebody read this in an awesome way and uh, we're, we're all going to follow along. <laughs> Great, awesome.
2: Uh, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our great, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what it is. What may you know? What is the hope to which He has called you? gave
0: him as head over all things to the church which is his body who fills all in all awesome thanks um okay so thanksgiving and prayer let's just talk about um chapter 1 15 through 23 so the first part verses 15 and the first part of 16 i think this is really the way that christians talk about each other he says for this reason because i've heard of your faith in the lord jesus and your love toward all the saints i do not cease to give thanks for you. That's verse 15. So think about that. I want to give thanks to God. I hope that you can give thanks to God for me and we can give thanks to God for each other for two reasons. One, because your faith in Jesus Christ. And second, because we love each other. The love that we share as saints. We want to thank God for that community, that relationship um, that he's been given. And this is what Paul says to the church he spent three years at. I thank God for your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. So in Christian community, we celebrate one another's faith and love toward each other. And then Paul, after giving thanks, proceeds with a prayer. So let's look at um, second part of 16 and into 17. Paul says, For this reason, oh, I'm sorry, it's uh, right here. Remembering in my prayers that the Lord, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So here's the outline here. So he gives thanks for the brothers and sisters in Christ. Then he prays that, um, that the brothers and sisters in Ephesus would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation. So this idea um, points out that he's t- the, the language here, this idea of spirit is, is the Holy Spirit, right? It's not a um, kind of ethereal human spirit. It's, it's the Holy Spirit indwelling the Christians, and it's central to the Christian life. It gives us wisdom revelation, and the knowledge of God. So the verse here says um, that the the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and a knowledge of him. So those are three things that we receive from the Holy Spirit and also empowers our our Christian life. Okay, and since the next thing is uh, Paul talks about the riches of his glorious inheritance. This is in verse 18. Having the eyes of your Hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints so again here Paul's coming back to the same in the the poem before one of the blessings was his inheritance we had and now he's praying that the church in Ephesus would live into this inheritance so I just want to ask you do you live life like you're incredibly blessed Right, I'm not talking about like materially blessed, but do you live life like you're a spiritually rich person, like you have an overflow of of power and a spiritual blessing within you to share with the rest of the world? Uh, And I think the answer is probably no. Right, that's not how I live. I'm often drained, often tired, often exhausted, often wish the kids would just like go to bed by themselves. I didn't have to go tuck them in. Right, we live that way, Uh, but that's not that's not the reality of our existence. So, um, a famous like a preaching story, I'm not the one that came up with this. So don't don't give me credit. But I think it's a powerful story. A lot of preachers have used before. But right after the Civil War ended, right, so Abraham Lincoln delivers the Emancipation Proclamation, right? Free all the slaves. For everyone is free. The Union has won the Civil War. We're a United Nation again. However. There um, were people living out west who hadn't heard the news yet, kind of like eastern Texas, western Arkansas, had not heard that the slaves were free, the, the war was over. And so there were slave masters and slaves who kept living in their previous arrangement. They did not know that freedom had come, even though freedom was the reality. So the slave master no longer had, I mean obviously never had moral authority, but no longer had legal authority over these image bearers that he was, he was um, ruling over, but acted like he did. And, and, and the slaves um, often believed that they were still in bondage. And so of course the correlation is those slaves were free, right, but were still living in slavery. And so the correlation is as Christians, we are free from sin. We've been delivered from, from sin and oppression and struggle and in our lives. And we often live like, like we're spiritually dry and empty. And so the challenge here in, in Ephesians is that Paul's praying that your eyes would be enlightened. Your heart would be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? You have been given enormous spiritual wealth, enormous spiritual blessing, enormous spiritual freedom, and claim it. Don't keep living like a slave. Live in this truth. That's, that's Paul's prayer there. Let's get down to verse 19 and we'll kind of finish up uh, where Paul finishes up. So verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Hear this. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. And he gave him as the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and is in all. Three things here. One, the power of God is so great that it defeated the greatest human threat that there ever was, death. So Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Rose from the dead. Second thing, God has given the fullness of his power to the church. So the same power that rose jesus christ from the dead that conquered death is given in fullness to the church so anybody take uh math classes in high school college remember like transitive properties so if a is b and c is b then a is c you follow me so if the power of god is in the church and we are in the church then what do we have the fullness of the power of god right and so the truth is the church doesn't act like that at all right we walk around meek and scared in a culture pulled apart and divided by the silly political and cultural ideas that rule our day divided up into factions based on who we did or didn't vote for or based on uh, what culture idea we're for or against and, and so we're weak and timid and almost ashamed of of the god who we serve And in the the gospel in ephesians is just the opposite not only is is the power of um, the Christian God indwelt in the church, the power of the God who rules over every earthly authority that there is. So, I mean, let's just name names: Benjamin Netanyahu, Angela Merkel, Donald Trump. Any leader in the history of the world sits where underneath this power. But as a church, we walk around meek, afraid to offend the the silly principalities of our age, is what Ephesians will later say. And Paul's saying here, you have the power that's above all of those things. Not only the power that's above those people, but the power that's over all of creation. So church, rise up in your power and change the world. right? Change the world for the glory of God. Share a message of hope and power to all across the world, to all the peoples and languages and tribes that haven't heard it yet, because, Revelation 22, there is coming a day where every knee will bow, where every people from every language, every nation, every tribe in the history of the world will gather together around the throne and worship this God who rose Jesus from the dead. How can we be assured that he has that much power? Because he conquered that which we could never conquer, sin and death in the resurrection. So that's what Ephesians 1 is all about. And uh, man, Paul's a good writer. So let's pray. And thank you guys for being here this morning. Father, we thank you so much for what you've given us. We are such blessed people. And Father, I repent that I so often live uh, like I'm empty, like I don't have anything left, like I'm tired, I'm emotionally drained, I'm spiritually empty, and God, we just claim that you have given us, your elect people in your church, the power of your Holy Spirit, an unending power to live out a life of spiritual abundance. And Father, we thank you that we can do that in community here at the church at Highland as the members of the Bridge Builders class. God, we thank you so much for the calling that you've given us. May we live powerful lives this week. It's in your son's awesome power that we pray. Amen. Hey, y'all have a great week. Thanks for coming this morning.